Hello and welcome to the PFFUI podcast. On this month's episode, Chief Medical Director for the Indiana Emergency Medical Services, Dr. Eric Yazel, joins the show to discuss mobile integrated health, paramedic and EMT recruitment, and mental health for frontline providers. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the PFFUI podcast. My name is Eric Schoeb and I'm joined today by President Tony Murray and Vice President Mike Whited. Hey guys. Hey, Eric, how are you doing? Doing great. Yourself? Good. Hi, Eric. Hi, Tony. Yep. Good afternoon. We are joined today by special guest, Chief Medical Director for Indiana Emergency Medical Services, Dr. Eric Yazel. Hello, Dr. Yazel. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for having me. Excited to be on here today. Dr. Yazel, please tell us a bit about yourself. Where are you from and what do you do for a living? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say I have the whole state of Indiana covered. I was born up in northern Indiana in Michigan City and lived in Lake County for a while. And then I uh, went to most of my school. I grew up on the east side of Indianapolis. Uh, went to Indiana for undergrad in Bloomington and then got my master's up at Ball State. And then I've been down in southern Indiana um, since 1999. So I live uh, in a small town called Borden, kind of middle of nowhere, about 30 minutes northwest of Louisville. Uh, so and I've been a bit all over, seeing uh, the northern part of the state, middle and south. Uh, I'm the son of a couple of educators, but I always was interested in healthcare and kind of continued to navigate in that. And once I got into emergency medicine, I uh, became a medical director for a lot of different EMS services and kind of developed my passion for EMS from there. How did you get started in the medical field? Oh, wow. First, uh, first job in the field, I guess it depends on how you define that. Uh, probably was a lifeguard, I guess, you know, I have CPR and basic first aid training and, you know, some, some field management of various injuries, uh, through that. I always thought I wanted to do ER and I, uh, I had a family friend whose son was an ER doc up at Cook County in Chicago, which is the, uh, the location where the, the TV show ER is based out of. And got to follow him a couple of times and I'm like, this is what I, what I want to do. And so just kind of always gradually uh, kind of gravitated towards that field. So we can safely say that your career as a lifeguard launched your career in emergency medicine. Something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first time I ever had to do CPR and things, so I guess that counts. Well, I don't know. I was a lifeguard in high school, and I took a different turn, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't say there was a lot of work getting done most days. It was more sitting around and enjoying the scenery at the pool and things like that. So. Working on your tan. Yeah. Right. You and Mike That's have sat right. in common right. uh, at the at the state house today. Mike testified on a bill in committee um, regarding uh, uh, life saving uh, personal flotation devices uh, along the uh, lakeshore of Lake Michigan. So there you go. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A couple of things there. So uh, a Michigan City kid, uh, former lifeguard, and and Mike, former lifeguard, former EMT, trying to make people safer along the uh, the the shores of Lake Michigan. The beaches. Oh, I trust me. I remember there were there was an occasional drowning when I lived up there, and uh, my parents always uh, told me to have a uh, healthy respect for the undertow and some other things. So I think that's a probably a great bill that you're supporting there. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, yeah, I, I uh, as a as a young kid, I grew up in that lake uh, on the beaches, uh, northwest Indiana, and a part of our uh, entertainment, free entertainment, was uh, to find the warm water 
which was discharges really from the mills. <laughs> and uh, we'd usually find some dead fish, pretty big ones, and throw them at each other. Uh, I'm not sure what we were thinking or uh, what our parents made. You know, they think they were ignoring us. Well, I'm a, uh, they call it river rats down here when you're out on the Ohio River. And I would assume the cleanliness is probably pretty similar <laughs> to, uh, to what you had. So. What does your job as chief medical director of the Indiana Emergency Services entail? You know, the thing I like about it most is honestly, it's kind of a nebulous position there. Uh, you know, that you can take it where you want to go and develop your own philosophies and things like that. And I'll say, you know, it's my philosophy is a little bit generic to support all things EMS. But what's most important to me is to get out in the field, sit down and talk with the boots on the ground crews all over the state and make sure I'm representing uh, that I understand what's going on out there and representing them well as I advocate for EMS, whether that be, you know, protocol development, advocating with legislature, um, you know, rules and regulations, any of those other things that are kind of the daily functions. I want to do that with a, uh, a mindset that I'm truly in tune with what's happening out there in the state and, and all over the state, you know, that north, south, east, and west, that, you know, they, that they know my door's always open or my phone's always on and that I've been there in person to see what their setups look like, to listen to, you know, the things they do well, that they're, to listen to their challenges and things and, and, and develop, you know, my philosophy on what needs to be done from that, from that real world experience. Yeah, we, um, we've had a good opportunity to work with you um, in your uh, short period of time since you were appointed in this position, but uh, which, has been, which has been great. I know that you spoke at our, uh, our uh, state convention last year, um, you know, addressing our delegates there about uh, the role. Uh, but uh, Mike and I uh, actually were part of uh, providing testimony and supporting the bill that created uh, the state uh, emergency medical uh, director, and uh, you're the third uh, in this short period of time. Uh, first was Dr. Mike Olinger uh, in that role, and then Dr. Mike Kaufman, and and, and now you're the uh, the third in this short period of time. But one of the reasons that we really, uh, from our uh, perspective as as PFFUI leaders and working in the legislature, was that this was a this was a really needed position to help guide the future of EMS. Uh, in our state when that was back. And do you remember when, what, that's kind of several years. Yeah, it's been several years. I'd say seven, eight years ago now that that, that took place. But um, we're we're happy to have you along. And, and uh, you bring a unique perspective of understanding um, really all facets of out-of-hospital care uh, from the basic EMT level to uh, first responder to uh, the advanced paramedic level. So we, we appreciate uh, everything that you're doing uh, in this role to help enhance and and help provide a resource to, to our members uh, out on the streets. Well, no, I appreciate it. And it's been a great partnership already. And, you know, I make no secret that I have a strong degree of respect for, for fire services and fire-based EMS and all the things that come with it. So it's been a great partnership, and uh, you guys have been great to work with so far. We are hearing more and more about mobile integrated health, but many people have no clue what it is. Could you please briefly explain what mobile integrated health is? Yeah. So mobile integrated health is basically using the EMS system outside of the 911 realm to deliver care at, at people's place of residence for an especially vulnerable population. And I know that's kind of a long-winded answer there, but basically I say it's one of the community uh, initiatives where everybody wins. You know, we all have in our communities patients that have certain barriers to 
accessing the healthcare in a traditional fashion, whether that be substance use disorder or, or elderly, you know, mental illness, um, people with, you know, chronic medical conditions that are heavy healthcare utilizers. Those are all populations, you know, that can be well served with mobile integrated health programs. We used to call it community paramedicine, but obviously that led to the idea that you had to be a paramedic and some, you know, some care can be delivered at the, at the EMT level as well. And then we also utilize social workers and other professionals. But so it's great for our patients with healthcare vulnerabilities. You know, it's great for the EMS system because you say, okay, these are people who are typically, you know, heavy ER or heavy 911 utilizers um, who, you know, who are a strain on the system at times. And this frees them up, frees the EMS systems up to look at, you know, your more acute emergencies while again, still addressing some of those chronic medical conditions with a mobile integrated health program. And then your local healthcare uh, delivery system benefits as well, your hospitals and things like that, because it helps address ER crowding. It helps with ER boarding. It helps with uh, readmissions to the hospital and all those things that help keep your hospitals, you know, financially healthy and, and healthier, um, you know, for the, for the community service delivery. So it's a, it's a really great system and, you know, it's, it's versatile and you can adjust to a new trend in your community in days. Whereas if you're looking at a brick and mortar provider, you know, it can take years. So it's, it's a really nice cost-effective, you know, patient-friendly way to deliver healthcare in a barrier-free manner. And I think that uh, we often hear this, uh, these programs referred to as MIH uh, or MIHP, Mobile Integrated Health uh, Programs. And um, I know that even it, right now in this session of the legislature, um, there are three or four bills that have some component of helping to support or uh, to uh, uh, lift up Mobile Integrated Healthcare's or MIHP's around. And I know that we have several uh, fire-based um, MIH programs um, around the state as well and, and, and more to come. And I think as we help sort of uh, develop um, these programs through um, legislative action where we can get reimbursement or get grant programs um, that are uh, state-funded to help uh, subsidize and support these programs, that, that it's only going to be um, um, increase uh, in, in terms of developing out and, and really the bottom line, helping uh, people in a different way in the communities um, that we serve. Absolutely. Uh, some of our fire-based MIH programs are some of our you know longest standing ones and some of our most successful ones. And I agree right now we're in a situation where a majority of these programs are, are grant supported and we've been fortunate enough to you know, as legislature looks at, you know, they've increased some of those grants over the years, but we still want a pathway to sustainability so that these, you know, we can do five, 10, 15 year planning with some of these programs. And so that's where some of the, uh, the focus has been when we advocate uh, for MIH overall. And would you agree, Doc, that, that now these programs have been in existence long enough to where we're able to now capture um, some meaningful data that we can actually look at and see how effective uh, these programs are and where we can step off uh, into making them more effective or, or concentrate in areas of need. Would, would you agree? Absolutely. I, I think we've already shown in numerous areas of the state, we've already shown the worth and the value of these programs. You know, now my focus is more a lot of times on expansion to areas that haven't traditionally had MIH programs and then also looking for new avenues where MIH can make an, an impact. You know, I think we've been talking a lot lately about aging in place at home, you know, elderly fall prevention and, 
you know, helping people with their medications and things like that. You know, I think those are some new frontiers. Um, some MIH programs are even doing like helping people with their preoperative uh, um, tasks that they have to do. You know, if you have to get an EKG or some things like that with a procedure coming up that helps hospitals stay lean and efficient. There's just a lot of new avenues that we're looking to. And we have the MIH map that shows the different uh, programs across the state and each state turns red or pink, depending on what you what you think of the color of the map there. And I'd like to see the entire state of Indiana, you know, be covered with that. And you know, that's our eventual goal. And every few months, a, a few more counties pop up. And so I think we're rapidly, uh, rapidly getting to that goal. This is the legislation that Tony was talking about was uh, uh, it starts a pilot program. It's three counties to start the, a new MIH program. And it's also looking at it to measure these programs. So this is this is a good thing. I think we're heading towards uh, doing it in every county. Absolutely. And, and they could, they picked uh, some great programs that I think have a strong footprint that are going to be very successful in demonstrating the worth of MIH. So, so I think we're, we're in good shape there. And, you know, I think what one thing we've talked about as a EMS organization is saying, let's not just stop there though. Let's get all our programs sharing data, you know, so that we can really say, Hey, this is, this is the impact we have you know, both on our patients, on healthcare costs, you know, on all the different aspects of healthcare that we look into, um, you know, we want to demonstrate that impact on as wide a spread as, as possible. You mentioned earlier, 5, 10, 15 years down the road. What does the future of MIH look like in, in Indiana? That's a great thing. I think it'll be ubiquitous. I really do. I think as we have our strong MIH programs really integrating themselves to become an essential part of a community's healthcare continuum, that's going to further show people the value of EMS in general and, and raise the whole, uh, the whole field of EMS. You know, I, I think one complaint we always have is that EMS reimbursement and salaries and some of those things have lagged over the years. Uh, this is a new, different way to ingrain ourselves in the community and demonstrate our worth that I think will hopefully in turn help us as we advocate for with, with, the decision makers and the purse string holders and things like that to uh, to have more value placed into EMS. So I think it's just another way of inserting ourselves into the healthcare continuum. And we're fortunate enough to get to do that while serving some of our community's most vulnerable citizens, which is a pretty noble mission in my eyes. We oftentimes talk about the workforce shortage. The fire service has seen decline numbers in hiring processes for the last few years. Tony and I as paramedics and Mike as an EMT, we are seeing less paramedics in the field. We're taking more medical calls outside of our districts and receiving more ALS intercepts due to the lack of paramedics on medical scenes. What are some ways you are addressing the workforce issue? It's it's a huge issue for us. Uh, all the things that we talk about, all the bells and whistles and programs and initiatives that we want to do, they're all going to be limited in the current workforce environment that we have. Uh, one one statistic I always throw out there is there are about 4,700 licensed paramedics in the state of Indiana, but only 1,600 of those actually filed a run in the 911 system in the last year. So, I mean, that is an absolutely critical workforce shortage. We recently released a, a report from the Bowen Center, which is a, a population health, public health organization out of Indianapolis that did a very comprehensive uh, workforce study. And uh, again, showed some some really critical areas of need. So, 
we've got to kind of hit it from all angles. I mean, first of all, I think we need to uh, make sure that we're retaining the ones that we do have. And so working on, you know, work, uh, you know, quality of life and uh, workplace satisfaction and things like that. But we also got to get butts in the seats. You know, we've got to start reaching out to kids and, you know, eighth grade and start introducing them to the healthcare field and, you know, fostering them, getting their CPR training and, you know, entry-level positions and making sure that there are various training programs all across the state that meet people where they're at in their part of life. You know, I always say a, uh, you know, an EMT who's 18 with, you know, no other obligations probably wants to pound through his class as soon as possible and get out in the street and start, you know, earning money and taking care of people and putting his skills to practice. You know, somebody else who's a career change that may have a family of four and is working another job, you know, they may only be able to do it, you know, one night a week or something. And then also geographically, you know, obviously the uh, the training programs tend to be clustered around our most populous areas. So, you know, you're asking somebody two or three nights a week to do a four-hour round trip. I mean, that's a tall order. So we're working on, you know, all things like that, increasing our training programs, increasing how many sites we have. Um, we're supporting test prep to help uh, with our pass rates so that people, when they do finish the class, are able to go through and, and get their certification. So just a lot of different initiatives that are coming out right now. And we're really fortunate to receive some of the public health funding uh, from the Governor's Public Health Commission this, this past year. Um, and they've realized that our public health system will never reach uh, its potential without a robust EMS system. And, and part of that is having the workforce to to put those initiatives out. And so we're really working hard to, to do that. Um, the challenge is that's a, that's a long game. You know, those things won't show up, you know, for a couple of years down the road. So it's still really a challenge to, to maximize uh, what we are doing right now today. I always say, you know, we'll get you some, some new workforce in the next few years, but that doesn't help you fill your schedule this weekend. And I think that's the challenge and the crutch, or the crutch that a lot of our services are feeling right now. If you don't know Dr. Yazel, you would be surprised to know that there's only one of them. Uh, this guy does so much and is, is at a lot of different places helping to create the discussion, helping to promote um, EMS and what it is in, in our, our, all aspects of our workforce, but also to help us to progress. You have a vision, I think, that is um, just outstanding. And uh, you really are um, on all fronts of this and, and really helping uh, to engage people in spaces maybe that have, have not ever been engaged before. So we do appreciate, um, you know, the efforts that you put forward and, and the partnerships that we can create, because I think together we'll be able to help address these workforce issues, these workforce challenges through recruitment and retention and, and getting more paramedics and EMTs um, in the field. So thanks for for the work that you're doing, because it's, it's really necessary. No, I truly appreciate it. And like I mentioned before, it's just really important for me to get out and hear what places are experiencing firsthand. You know, there's no substitute for that. I think, number one, it means a lot to um, to somebody when somebody from a state agency comes out to their hometown or wherever that may be, shows interest in learning about their system and things, but also to listen. And I, I mean, I learn a ton everywhere I go. And, you know, again, it helps me to, to, set, to get a feel for what the boots on the ground are experiencing and and a lot of that is, you know, the workforce crunch and things like that. And also just from, I'm still actively working in emergency medicine. And so I, I see that side of it. I'm, uh, you know, they deliver patients to me uh, just uh, just like they always have and learn a lot that way too about what we need to do out there. So, yeah, I know you're well thought of uh, in, in the, your ERs that, that, that you're uh, training patients and, and uh, meeting EMS folks as they come in and, and bring you patients. 
it's uh, it's still part of what I love. Uh, it's funny every once in a while when I'm on a, a, a site visit, they'll say, "Hey, uh, you know, we're getting ready to go out on a run. Do you want to go?" And I'm I always can't jump in the truck fast enough. So <laughs> it's always extra brownie points when you load me up when I come visit. <laughs> One of the growing concerns in the fire service and EMS is mental health. How is Indiana Emergency Medical Services addressing mental health for providers? That's a great question and something I'm, I'm passionate about. I also do do some work in the mental health field. And I always say for the first responder community, uh, for lack of a better word, we do everything ass backwards. We say, here's this career where you're going to go out there and you're going to see, you know, things that no, no person was meant to see. And then six months, a year, 10 years, whatever that looks like, when you have, uh, when it starts to kind of build up on you and you struggle with it a little bit, then we'll tell you after the fact how you should have processed it. And, you know, that this does not, a, obviously, that's not an efficient way to do things. And so one of the things we've really been looking at is, is comprehensive mental health support for, you know, fire, EMS, and, and what that looks like. What are the essential components of that? And I think there's a lot of things, you know, I think there needs to be some pre-employment, you know, training, some resiliency training, some things like that, just to say, hey, here's some things you're going to see, here are your options, and, you know, this is how you might feel and, and how to deal with that. I think peer support is a big part of that, always has been. I think that um, that other things that you look at um, as well are, are virtual options. You know, I think it's, you know, we're not a we're not a nine to five percent, but uh, we're not a nine to five profession. You know, these things happen after hours, two in the morning, things like that. So having some virtual availability, especially in our rural areas, um, critical incident stress management. When we see something especially traumatic that we have, you know, resources that are available in real time and just some of those comprehensive things that's a continuum of care for our mental health uh, professionals. And again, when you talk about legislative side of things, uh, this past session, I think there were several bills that kind of started out in that mental health first responder arena, but like there wasn't really something concrete that people could grasp onto and carry that to the finish line. So I think it's the onus is on us to say, Hey, here's what we need as a profession and let's advocate for that. And I think we'll have a receptive audience in order to make that happen. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot at play right now. And, and I would say that, uh, you know, from, from our perspective, the, the, the priority and the foundation of why we exist as a union is to address the needs of our members. And, you know, the mental health challenges and the stress and the struggles is nothing new in this profession. But about a decade ago, from our union perspective, we decided uh, to take this topic out of the shadows and actually start dealing with it and, and building resources around our members to, to now sort of have wraparound uh, resources and identify and at least talk about the, 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 the issues you know, that, that you mentioned, Doc, that come along with this job and, and no longer ignoring those, but saying, how can we help uh, foster this? What can we do to prevent? What can we do to treat? What can we do to, to keep, um, you know, this cumulative stress from debilitating our workforce? And, um, you know, we've, we're building these programs. And I think one of the bills uh, that became law last session was um, uh, that that required uh, training for First responders, police officers, uh, EMTs, paramedics, and, and uh, firefighters—one initially as their new employees, but also annually. So that that currently that process is being built out now uh, by uh, the the agency IDHS um, and law enforcement to then uh, to deliver this uh, education, suicide prevention, 
um, and um, mental health and behavioral health um, strategies to to be better uh, and to treat those things. So we're pretty, um, I think that we're pretty lucky to have um, a very supportive group of people, both in um, state government, state agency, uh, in our locals all around the state, um, and our uh, international local in this state union um, that have partnered and come together to say, you know, let's make let's make the the health of our people a priority as well, and that includes mental health. Absolutely, and I, you know, I think that is as commendable as it gets because we're not traditionally a, a profession that you know accesses the mental health system very well or very efficiently. You know, I think there's still a lot of stigma associated with it, and so I think having these discussions and having you know comprehensive availability of of kind of a you know, not a one size fits all, like everybody has to do this one thing, but having a comprehensive, you know, smorgasbord of options for somebody who is having some struggles. Um, you know, I think that's, that's obviously crucial to the overall health of, of our providers. And so really excited to see where this is going. Um, I've met with several people from like our division of mental health and addiction at the state about what these programs would look like and kind of developing a best practices sort of model for this. So really excited to see where where this can go because you know it's it's just got universal support and uh, it's obviously a, a critical need well and i i learned through this conversation that that you dabble in uh, uh, some behavioral treatment so i'm gonna i'm gonna probably have to talk to you and make schedule some time that well that'd be that'd be awesome uh, yeah i'm the uh Life Spring Health Systems is a, uh, is, I work for them. They're a community mental health system. I'm their chief medical officer. So I, I dabble in that a little bit as well. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Yazel, uh, today I ran into uh, Representative Rita Fleming, uh, and she was talking about a program that's fairly new, and uh, she said you were passionate about it. I told her we were going to be doing a podcast with you later. It's, it's a program called Handle with Care, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there don't know what this program is. Can you kind of explain what it is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Representative Fleming's been a huge advocate of this program, and she's a wonderful community advocate uh, for, for a lot of a lot of healthcare areas, so we're lucky to have her. She's from my neck of the woods, and there's a program called Handle with Care, which uh, Basically, what it is, is a first responder or, you know, invested community member can notify a school that a child has experienced a traumatic event. So say a child is uh, has had a domestic violence event in his home that, you know, was it up all hours of the night with that and police involvement or EMS out in the scene, things like that. They can send a notification to that child's school. It maintains privacy. It just says, you know, Johnny is handled with care today. So that, you know, if he's sleeping in class or, you know, doesn't have his homework done that, you know, honestly, so they cut him a little bit of slack in that scenario. And, you know, the, you know when a kid has had a, a challenge like that, I, I think that's just a really, really good way to, to help help a student not feel like the whole weight of the world's coming down on him when he's experienced a, a traumatic event. And, you know, I think a lot of times our, our first responders are on scenes like this where you, your heart goes out to the children that are on the scene and things, and you wish there was something that you could do to help. Well, this is that modality to get there. And uh, we're really passionate about trying to get it up and running countywide in our area. Um, we have some of the school corporations invested in it, a lot of our first responder community, and really would love to see this kind of pop up. Some, some, several areas of the state are doing this well already. 
but really would like to see it uh, you know, kind of pop up all over the state. I think it's a really great program. I think we're going to find out some more information on this. We've got our convention coming up here in a couple months, and we're going to have representation from most of Indiana there. We'll, we'll get the word out to our members on this. This is a program that they could start using. I think it's I think it's awesome. I think it's a natural uh, partnership with some of the fire services, especially fire-based EMS. Again, you know, you may not be out on the scene for, you know, the child themselves, but something's going on in that house where the child will have been up all night or things like that. It does. It gives you a it gives you a means to, to help that child even when you're not physically on the scene there. And I think that's a, that's a noble cause. Dr. Yazel, we will get you out of here on this question. Indianapolis EMS resuscitated a trauma victim in the field using whole blood. What are your thoughts on EMS crews carrying whole blood for resuscitation efforts in the field? Well, you, you saved one of my favorites for last, to be honest. You know, you know, they make the jokes about like vegans talk about their stuff or cross-centered talk about their stuff. If I'm not going on and on about MAH, I'm going on and on about pre-hospital whole blood. Uh, the, there's some the bread and butter of EMS. There's some, there's some uh, systems that have done it very, very well. San Antonio, Miami. And it's really been game changers for their community. But what excites me is those are areas that are very urban and have relatively short response times. What we haven't seen is widespread whole blood pre-hospital ground EMS use in places that are a little farther out, your 15, 20, 30 minute response time areas. You know, I would say the perfect place are those ones where if you have a bad trauma, you're like, should we fly this or just, you know, put the pedal to the metal and try to get to our trauma system, uh, center as soon as possible. And I really think that's where a lot of the potential life-saving is right there. And, you know, and EMS is, or NDEMS has done it with some of their tactical stuff. I think that's great. We have a couple of programs at Newcastle and Crawfordsville who are, who are carrying pre-hospital whole blood. And what I would like to see is all the trauma centers maybe partner with a system or two, an EMS system or two as a pilot, so that we have different variations of this program all over the state and we can begin to collect data to, to show that there's a benefit there. You know, I really think this is probably the biggest advance we can make in pre-hospital trauma care of anything we could be doing. So I'm really excited to see the uptake, the interest. Every time I, I mention it at any kind of state meeting, I get three or four services that are like, we want to do this. Where do we start? And things like that. So I do think, you know, we'll, we have a few pilot programs now, but I think you'll start to see those pop up all over the state. And that's a really exciting uh, thing for me. And this is the bread and butter type of uh, thing that, that uh, trauma for uh, EMS providers and you know, uh, as we begin to wrap up, and it's been a great uh, opportunity to talk and, and learn a little bit about what's going on in, in um, EMS around Indiana, and to have you on board, uh, um, part of that, um, I think, and, and, and I interact with you on a regular basis. Because of PFFUI, we are engaged on, on a variety of levels, uh, really all levels of EMS. And, uh, you know, our members are out on the street. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, first response, uh, really over 90% you know, uh, are making first response calls and, and, you know, we're 85% uh, doing, uh, out of hospital care and transport, um, 911 side of things across Indiana. So we're really uh, part of every conversation when it comes to the, the, the trauma system, which we had great progress in Indiana building out the trauma system, but looking at also the vision for the future as it pertains to, to EMS. And we've been working through a series of workshops and and we're glad that that um, there's a lot of different representation, not just from the PFFUI, but from 
all areas of public safety that have been part of those meetings and, and in the medical community as well and public health. So uh, we really appreciate working with you um, to make advancements for our Hoosier uh, state. No, I, I appreciate the working relationship we have, uh, the you know, through the Fire Alliance and PFFUI. I mean, I've just had a, a nothing but wonderful interactions and, you know, the, the shared vision for where we think uh, EMS can go in the future is is great. And I just think there's never been a more exciting time. I mean, we're not without challenges. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, as you mentioned, there's more and more legislative understanding, community understanding of what needs to be done. So I do think, you know, and then, you know, we're starting to get the tools that we need to make those changes to make the EMS system in Indiana reach the potential that it has. And just a really, really exciting time across the boards. All right, Dr. Yeza, well, thank you very much for your time today and for joining us on the show. Well, I really appreciate you having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to everybody. Thank you for taking your time. All right. Thank you. Thanks, yes. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the PFFUI podcast. Follow us on social media by searching the Professional Firefighters Union of Indiana. For more information about news and upcoming events, visit www.pffui.com. Until next time, this is PFFUI Communications Director Eric Shoib. Stay safe.